welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. You know, we live in a world that communicates very differently than even a few years ago or generations ago. Technology has taken communication to a completely different level. And while technology has made communication easier, there are sometimes it seems like communication gets harder. Because your 120 character message may not be received with the same enthusiasm and great positive attitude in which you sent it. We email the bane of my existence, email. I told somebody on one of my projects at work this week that include me on all your emails. I go through hundreds of them a day. I'm pretty good at at grilling and, and milling my way through emails. I'd rather know than not know. Send us your emails. Hopefully email dies here soon. <laughs> Text messaging. It's taking over the world. It's, it's the way we communicate. You can tell how old you are by the way you text message. If you write out full words and sentences, you're not young. If you have learned the abbreviations and the, and the codes and you put down the BRB and K and I mean, okay, I mean, it's just, I mean, you cut your time in half, right? Just the K. You've learned all the little acronyms. You're probably pretty hip. But you've not really tackled the beauty of text messaging. Because when you're good, you just send pictures, (laughs) icons, called emojis. Before long, we will be like cavemen, communicating through pictures. Instant messaging, social media. We have an overload on ways that we can communicate one with another. And one of the inherited um, benefits is the ability to quickly communicate a single message to a large audience. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about, I think the context of it is your sin or your iniquity will be blasted from the rooftops. We can just blast anything from the rooftops nowadays. Sometimes we get held captive in things or people blasting, you know, group texts. Somebody wants to tell everybody one little thing, and then you are in the part of this group text of 15 or 20 people, and four days later they're talking about something completely different, and you're like, why am I here? They got the cat declawed four days ago. Why do I care? Leave group text. Beep. We communicate in so many different ways today. But we have the ability to send one message to a large audience. We even have a program we use at church. 
where we can go in and I can type out one short, condensed, I have 160 characters when I send out a text message. I know it was a few weeks ago I sent one out and Ashley goes, wow, you got a whole lot in there for 160 characters. <clears throat> I just type it one time, I click all the names of all the people and hit send. In two minutes, everybody's received a text message that says the same thing to everybody. How would you have done that in 1965? <laughs> That's hilarious. We went to a museum not too long ago. My kids aren't in here, so I'm going to make fun of them. And, and they had a display with a rotary phone. And I won't tell you which one, but one of them didn't get it. Just kind of stood there like, hmm. Their idea was you started at zero and took it to the number you wanted to go to. Didn't work. And you haven't experienced a rotary phone until you, like, cut the end of your finger off. A rotary phone? Now we just push the buttons, right? Nah, we don't even push the buttons. You don't even dial the number anymore, do you? You just push the person's name. Or you scream at it. Call my wife. No, I didn't say get a life. I said call my wife. <clears throat> All the ways we communicate. It wasn't long ago that if you wanted to communicate to a mass group of people, it was significantly, deep, significantly different. People all had to come together in an assembly at one destination at an appointed time so that you could talk to them. You had to plan it well in advance. You had to send an invitation to them. Let the Pony Express take it out there to them. They had to receive it in enough time to make plans so that they could then travel to the place where the, the message was going to be communicated. And when they all got there, then you had a captive audience. And man, they paid attention because they put some effort to get there. Outside of assembling together, there are, however, other kinds of communications. Rather than have to get everybody together, there was a way that they could blast a message out to people. It was more one-on-one, -on -one, but you could write a letter. Anybody wrote a letter recently? I can't think of the last time I wrote a letter. I've read some emails this week that felt like letters. Like, can you cut this down to four paragraphs? <clears throat> this letter... It combined the convenience of writing with the ability to, to express one message to people. There wasn't this 160 character limitation. The author had the freedom to write until the intended message was clearly communicated. One page, two page, six pages, an entire scroll. Whatever it took for them to communicate the message, they could write it out. The letter would then be sent to a recipient. Once read, if need be, the same letter with its message could then be passed to another recipient. So now we're, we're multiplying the efficiency of a letter. Even letters could be read out loud to groups of recipients. 
We find this in Scripture. Paul wrote letters to the church. The church of Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, letters to Timothy, letters to Titus, letter to Titus, letters to the church in Thessalonica. We find all these letters that Paul wrote, and they would arrive, and he could communicate a message. I bet Paul was thankful he didn't have to get everybody together to stand outside the prison wall while he screamed out the message out the window. Everybody, meet us at the Roman jail cell 4B and listen carefully because I want to scream out a message out the window in four weeks. <clears throat> the beauty of the letter. We find multiple times in Scripture where God uses the avenue of writing like writing in a letter. So today, join me, and we're going to look at this idea, this topic, when God writes. When God writes. I don't really have a key, per, a key verse or a scripture passage to begin with today. I'm just going to kind of jump into the points. <clears throat> One of the times we find that God writes is when he wrote on tablets of stone. It's in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he, this is God, gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Maybe you've said the phrase or you've heard the phrase used before. Well, it's not written in stone. Well, let me tell you, there's some stuff that is written in stone. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, is written in stone. These are the laws that never change in the eyes of God. These are the foundations of human morality, the Ten Commandments. Let's go through them. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. If you ever want to know where the Ten Commandments are, Exodus 20, chapter 3 is where it begins. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make, oh, excuse me, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. <coughs> excuse me. Let's try verse 4 again. It's got me all hung up. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is above heaven, or that is beneath it, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children to the third and fourth generations, for those who hate me. But show mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. God was pretty clear about idols, wasn't he? Nothing in the sky, nothing in the earth, nothing in the sea. Don't worship it, don't bow down to it, and if you do, it could curse your family for three to four generations. That's pretty solid. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These things are all still true today. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, 
You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. So if God thought it was good enough for him to take a day of rest, you can't outdo God. So that's why we have a Sabbath. And we're supposed to honor it. And in honoring it, we keep it holy. Welcome to church on Sunday. This is our Sabbath day. This is our holy day. This is the Lord's day. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Did you know if you dishonor your father and mother, your days will be short? There's two ways that happens. One, you're being disobedient to God's word. Secondly, you dishonored your mother and father. Look out. Honor your father and mother. 13. You shall not murder. There was no exceptions, there were no clauses, there's no fine print, there's not another sentence, there's not a qualifying statement, there's not a contract to be negotiated. You shall not murder. So don't kill nobody, okay? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We say you shall not lie. And the tenth one, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's, nor his car, nor his house, boat, Motorhome, beautiful green grass in his yard, his job. Don't covet. If God's blessed you with what you have, then be satisfied because that's God's blessing to you. And God may be saving you the headache of maintaining everything your neighbor has. What's the old saying? The more you own, the more that owns you. <clears throat> well, I got a car and a truck and a boat and a motorhome and a motorcycle and an ATV and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, what would you do this weekend? Well, I, I was working on the lawnmower, and then I had to stop and work on this, and then I had to stop and work on that. And you find out that you spend more time working on it than you do enjoying it. God may be saving some of us from headaches. Don't covet. So let's be very clear here today. The moral law of God has not changed to the winds, the whelps, the whimpers of society. God's moral law is not subject to the preferences of our culture. God's moral expectation for humanity is the same today as it was when Moses came walking off the Mount of Olives. Not Mount of Olives, the Mount Moriah. Why? Because God does not change. 
Why? Because the Word of God tells us His Word is forever settled. The moral law of God is not subject to the winds of this world. It has not changed. God's law does not have degrees to which we are obedient to it. You can't be 5% obedient to God's law. God's law is either a I'm all in or I'm out. God's law is like getting shocked by an electrical wire. You can't grab it and get 5% shocked. When you grab a hold of that hot wire, you get all the juice 100% of the time. And when you let go, you don't have the power any longer. If you can let go. And that's how it is with the law of God. Either we're 100% bought in and being obedient to his word, or we've let go of his word and we're not following it. There's no degree of obedience in the word of God. You can't be half murderer. You can't be a partial adulterer. You can't be a small stealer, a small thief. Either we're obeying God's word or we're not obeying God's word. It's either a yes or a no in the expectations of God's morality. Now, I know I'm stomping all over relative moralism in our world today. Relative moralism says, in this situation, you have this set of morals. In this situation, you have this set of morals. And in this other situation, you have a different set of morals. No, our morality doesn't change based upon the environment that we're in. Our morality is forever settled for us in the Word of God. And I obey the Word of God. So I don't choose whether I can steal based upon the situation I'm in. God's Word says, thou shalt not steal. I don't choose if I'm going to covet based upon the circumstances that life has me in in that particular moment. Look at our world. This is why our world has no moral foundation any longer. Moral relativism has removed the foundation of our society. People say, in this situation, I have this set of moral, morals. And then when you put me over in, in this environment with these people and in this circumstance, I'll have a different set of morals, a different set of what I think is right and wrong. And when the people over here look at you over there, they see a liar. And when the people over here look at you over on this side, they see a cheat. And you're like, well, I wonder why everybody thinks I'm... Like this, don't they understand? And then we get into these long, drawn-out debates. Pity parties. I'm just putting it out there. Well, I could do it in this situation because of this. We live in a world that has more excuses than they have reasons. Because we have not bought in as a society, we've sold out to the world's idea that morals change based upon the circumstance we're in. God's law does not change. His law is forever settled. It is written in stone. His expectation is yea and nay. So while humanity likes to live in the gray area, God's moral code is already established and clearly settled. Amen? 
That's good preaching, preacher. Let's be clear. The moral, of God, the moral code of God is never going to change. Not only has it not changed, and not only is it... This, is it let me get my words right. Not only has it not changed, and it's true that it's the same today as it's always been, if those two are true, then you can bank on it. It's not going to change. So don't sit around and say, well, I'll comply today with hope that someday it'll be different. It's not going to be different tomorrow. There will never be a day where God sends you a one-on-one -on -one personal message. God drops you a, a, a personal text message. Hey, today you can kill somebody. It's okay. His moral law will not change. It's just as wrong to lie to somebody as it is to murder somebody. It's just as wrong to dishonor your parents as it is to steal. It's just as wrong to not remember the Sabbath as it is to worship a graving images. There are no degrees in the law of God. There's no priority or preference in the Ten Commandments. They may be written in numerical order because we named them. This is commandment one. This is commandment two. That, that's not in Scripture. He just lays them out to us. The first one says, thou shalt have no other God before you. It's the first one in the list, but that doesn't mean it's more important than thou shalt not covet. Because if you covet, you've put something over God. God has written these things about our morality in stone, and it's not our place to chisel them away with our self-indulgent reasonings. We are to honor the words presented to us in stone when God writes. When God writes in stone, it's settled. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now that would be a wild experience. What would you do if we were in church, and let me describe this situation similar to the way Scripture wrote. And the saints were gathered at Life Spring Church on Sunday, and there appeared a man's hand and wrote in the plaster of the wall opposite of the projector screen. And those sitting in the audience saw the hand that wrote. <laughs> If God just right over here on this wall, you just seen a finger come down out of the sky, and well, you didn't see the sky come to the ceiling. He's God, so I hope you don't tear the ceiling up. It looks good right now. And then you just see his finger just start writing on the wall, just carving it into the plaster. 
I'd blink a couple times. I'd take my glasses off, put them back on. I'd ask somebody sitting next to me, this may sound crazy, but I just need to know, do you see the same thing I'm seeing? No, I see it too. God was coming to a king who was being dishonorable to him. And God was giving him a prophetic word. I still believe God writes the prophetic today. I still believe God operates in the prophetic today. When God writes, he can write today what will come to pass tomorrow or next week or next month, or some other point in your future. God still has the ability to write about your tomorrows. So don't become discouraged because today may be dim, and today may be dark, and yesterday may have not been the day of promise that you hoped for. Know this, God's still writing the story, and He can still write about your tomorrow. He can still prophesy to you about hours away, or days away, even generations away. Romans 4 and 7 tells us that there was a writing and God was telling things that did not exist as though they did exist. God has the ability to talk about stuff in real time that's not yet happened in real time. Does that make your head hurt? God doesn't live inside of time. If this was the beginning of time when God said, let there be light. And then he created the separation of light and darkness. And he set all of the celestial creation in motion. The beginning of time. And if this is the end of time, when or whatever that looks like. And we live some little dust spot here in the middle of this timeline. God lives out here. This is where God lives. And so when God looks at this, he just sees a dash mark and he's making influences inside that dash mark. And so God standing out here can look down here in the timeline while we're still living right here and he can say, okay, you need to know that at such and such point, you're not there yet. This is what's going to happen. Now, all of us are thinking, probably, maybe, you're thinking, well, if God knows, how come he didn't just write it out and give it to me? Because we have to have faith. We have to trust him. We have to have confidence in him. If he's our God, and if we really believe he's the savior of the world, and we really believe he is sovereign, then I can put my trust in him that in the next minute, the next month, the next day, the next year, it's all going to work out for my good. I want to serve a God that lives out here. I don't want a God that's constrained. I don't want a God that looks at the past and tries to predict the future. I want a God who lives outside of time and already knows the future and he can speak to it now as though it already is, even though it has not yet even happened. That should be an encouragement to you today. 
You may feel like your tomorrow is going to be dark. God knows. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not taken taken aback when you have a a disappointment or or you face a temptation or you struggle or maybe you have a falter in your life. God's not... (gasps) The impossibility we see as an obstacle is not an obstacle to God. He sees beyond the obstacle. We're going down life's road, and all we see is a massive boulder, 20 foot tall, covering the entire road, and we can't see over it, we can't see around it, and there's no way that we can get through it. And so we're worried and stressed and struggling with it, and God's already living on the other side of the boulder. He knows what's happening on the other side, down the road. So you can put your confidence in him because God's not done writing your story. Just because we see a plot twist doesn't mean it's the end of the novel. He's still writing. It's quite possible God has written prophetic words on the walls of your life. Now just let God bring it to pass. Let his perfect timing orchestrate its fulfillment well i want to help god out i think i know how to i think i see where this is going i think lord i think i'm in tune with you i think i got it so i'm going to go and make this decision and i'm going to go and make that decision and i'm going to make what god said this is going to happen happen you better be careful Gardeners can grow beautiful roses, but gardeners don't make roses beautiful. We are the gardener of our life. We maintain it. We care for it. We do all the watering and the feeding and the fertilizing and the maintenance, the trimming and the pruning and the cutting and the loving and the admiring. But we don't make the roses pretty. If the gardener was to go out there and see the rosebud and decide, I'm going to help this rose become its full potential and begin to try to unfold the rose, they end up with a hand of petals. But if they'll do their responsibility of just taking care of the garden, the roses will come and they will be unfolded and they will show forth the greatest beauty that they have available to them. So we must be careful that even though God may have given us a promise and God may have given us a prophecy in our life, that doesn't mean we have the right to unfold the rose. We just have the responsibility of caring for the garden. We need to build an atmosphere where the prophetic can come to pass. I wonder how many people's killed their prophecy. Well, God promised it, so I don't have to do anything else in the garden. I'm going to let the weeds grow up. I'm going to let the the bushes get all out of shape and all out of overgrown. I'm going to let the caterpillars attack it. I'm going to let the bugs attack it. I see there's insects eating the leaves, but God gave me a promise. No, no, no. You can't neglect the promise of God. You've got to maintain the promise of God. You've got to build the environment for the prophetic to come to pass in your life. So if God's written on the wall of your life, you have the beautiful responsibility 
of bringing that prophecy to fulfillment. Continue to pray. Continue to build your relationship with God. Continue to dig into his word. Continue to be faithful to him and build your relationship with Jesus Christ. And in due time, when God says your prophetic rose is to be unfolded, it will happen and it will be splendid. It will be beautiful. When God writes on the walls of our hearts or our lives, In John chapter 8, we find another scenario where God is writing the religious men of the city had found a woman caught breaking the moral law of God. One of the laws of God was thou shalt not commit adultery. And they found her committing adultery. Now, there's a whole lot of questions we can ask about this story, but let's just stay with the story. They brought her, and everybody's first question in 2022 is, where was he? Well, God didn't include that in the story. You can ask him when you get to heaven. All right, I already stepped out there. I guess I'm going to go. The stories in the Bible aren't about equality. The story in the Bible, this story in the Bible, is about God's grace. So don't read the Bible with 2022 cultural glasses on. Take your... uh, I'm speaking to to myself. I have a pair of these in my truck. It might age me. I don't know. But take your woke clip-on shades off. And just let God speak to you in his word for what it says. The story isn't about equality. The story isn't about fair treatment between the man and the woman. The story is about the grace of God. Don't get bent out of shape about what's not written in the Bible. Fall in love what is written in the Bible. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about this, so I'm all bent out of shape, and I'm all offended, and I'm all messed up. So you're going to be mad because the entire story's not there, and you're going to miss the beauty of what is there. That's a complete sidebar. That was free? You don't even have to pay tithes on that? It's absolutely free. And you're thinking, what story is he talking about? Because he's not even read it yet. Let's read it. John chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. Now Moses in the law commanded us, here's the religious speaking, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, And wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. Aren't you glad God ignores your accuser? When the accuser comes to God, he's not like, oh, really? Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you brought this information to me. What are we going to do about it? 
He just ignores it. And just like our accuser, her accuser, verse 7. So when they continued, they wouldn't let it go, asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. That's a powerful story. When Jesus writes in the earth or in the dust. You know, there are those in this world who are more than willing, ready, and maybe they already have begun to write out your judgment. They find their own relevance in pointing out the faults of others, and in accompanying those faults, they bring forth the judgment that should be brought on people. You've probably never met anybody like that. Let me just tell you, they're out there. All they have time to do is find fault, and then they want to prescribe the result of that fault, judgment on people. But when God writes in the dirt, his writing is full of grace and mercy. No, we don't know the exact words that he wrote in the dust that day. And the words that he wrote don't really matter. But what does matter is that he had power over the accuser. His words changed the situation. His simple question to them or his simple direction to them. If you are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Praise God. And they overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. God's already written your defense against your accuser. He's already ignored all of the, the accusation he's bringing before the throne of heaven. Some of you aren't too happy about that. The Bible tells us that Satan, the accuser, goes in and out of the throne room of God. And who's he talking about when he goes before God? You and I. And he's accusing us. Hey, did you know Sister So-and-so at Live Spring Church? Do you know what she was looking at and thought about the other day? Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, again. What are you doing here? Hey, I just thought I'd come and let you know, Jesus. Brother So-and-so, did you know? 
You know who the, busy, the busiest busybody is? Satan. Who has time to be the tattletale of the universe? What a superpower is that? Hey, Jesus, I want you to know. Sister so-and-so. And God just ignores him. It's a pestering. It's obnoxious. I'm describing the devil. And when he's making all of his accusations, God has already written our defense. Before the words can fall off of Satan's mouth and be heard in the ear of God, there's a bloodline that those accusations have to go through. And I've been covered by the blood. I've been buried in the name of Jesus Christ. I've had his blood applied to my life. I live a repentant lifestyle. So that means when Satan says my accusation, I've already taken it to an altar and buried it again under the blood and God's like what if you're facing an attack from the accuser all you have to do is remind him of the blood it was the blood that was shed through the open wounds of Jesus' back that heals all manner of sickness and disease. When the accusation comes to you and the accuser says, you're sick in body, you'll never recover, you've got a terminal disease, you look at him and say, the Bible says, by my stripes you are healed. It was the blood that ran from his pierced brow, from a crown of thorns, the bleeding from his face as they ripped his beard out that cleanses our minds and purifies our thoughts. When the Satan comes to you and he begins to make his accusations, you remember what you were thinking about just a little bit ago? You remember what you were thinking about yesterday? You remind him, Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns to purify the thoughts of my mind. I've put it under the blood. Get thee behind me, Satan. I'll not fall to your temptation to tempt me with my past temptations. It's over. I'm moving on. It was the blood that poured out of the wounds of his hands, that reached into the darkest pit of sin and pulled us out. It was those hands that extended grace to us. It was those hands that extended mercy to us. It was that hand of God, pierced with nails, that pointed my life in a new direction and changed me forever. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the blood and water that flowed from his side, that washes away all of our past and cleanses us from all sin. I'm thankful I've been buried in the water. I'm thankful I've been covered by his name. I'm thankful that when Satan comes to me and he begins to remind me, you remember when you were a teenager and you used to do this? You remember when it's such and such time of your life and you used to do that? You remember the lifestyle you used to live? You remember the way you used to speak? You remember the addictions you used to have? All I have to do is look at him and say, it's all under the blood. It's all in the past. You can accuse me all you want, but I have a right, according to God, to just ignore you. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know the greatest tool of resistance? Just ignore them. Don't point them out. But have you ever met somebody who was obnoxious? And you just, the only way to ever get rid of them is to just ignore them. Now, they've learned probably through life that the best way for them to get attention is by being obnoxious. And so they do it as a, as a reaction to get attention from people. And so if you want to stop the obnoxious, just stop giving them attention. Do you want to take, I'm just going to help you out in life. Do you want to take care of 95% of the drama in your life? Just ignore it. Your phone rings. Hey, so-and-so did such and such. And blah, 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 blah. And then 15 minutes, they've changed your whole day from being a good day to being a stressed out, worried, just a manic state of mind. And you're all messed up over it. Well, next time you call, maybe you have some good news. Let me know how it goes. Bye. Click. It was the blood from his pierced feet that ran down that helps us when we falter and when we stumble in life and when we take a misstep or our foot slips it delivers us with mercy it undergirds us and stands us up one more time it's by the power of the blood it's by the voice of your testimony somebody ought to testify you ought to tell your story about how God's been good to you. You ought to share with somebody about how God set you free and how God delivered you. You ought to tell somebody, hey, the devil's always reminding me about my problems. But let me tell you what God did with my problems. <laughs> you want to make the devil leave you alone about your past? Start telling people how God changed your past. Give somebody else hope that was in a situation like yours and the devil be like, oh, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Because he's going to, every time I say something about his past, he goes and tells somebody about his future. From where we live, there is insight into this story of redemption, this death of Jesus Christ. But on Palm Sunday, it was different. The story hadn't been written yet. And the characters of the story didn't fully understand the plot and the future events of what was going on. You see, they stood on the side of the road that day. And they watched Jesus arrive riding on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy, the old prophet from the Old Testament. And here he came. And the prophet said that he would be a king. And so they took the word of the prophet and they literally placed it into their society and they looked at the prophecy through the lens of culture. And they said, Jesus has come to be our king and free us from Roman oppression. You see, they didn't understand the story. They didn't know that at the end of that week, 
He would become not an earthly king, but he would become the king of kings. The crowd didn't understand that when they were looking at Jesus desiring for him to ascend on an earthly throne, that that week he was setting in motion a plan to reveal his heavenly throne. While the crowd only understood part of the story, the author was still writing. The plot was still being laid out. The story was shifting. The plot was thickening. And the twist hadn't even come yet. So I'm telling you today, when God writes, just let him keep writing in your life. It was death, the death of this king that delivered a greater purpose than the parade that followed the donkey. Greater purpose came than those who knew and understand than what they knew and understand while they were waving palm branches. While they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, there was a deeper purpose happening. There was a greater story being written than they even understood. The writer understood that the power in the shedding of his blood was more powerful than any kingly decree or political proclamation. And while man's political ambitions can change laws, you understand today that God's plan fulfilled the law. So while those standing on the street side, screaming and yelling and and, and celebrating the arrival of an earthly king... There was something bigger happening. God was still writing. He wasn't just going to change their day. He wasn't just going to change their culture. He wasn't going to change their political environment. He was going to change eternity. When God writes a story, He writes a complete story. Second Corinthians. This is one of those messages where my wife tells me when we get home, did you have to use every example in the Bible? (laughs) I only have one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Do we begin again to command ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you Paul's kind of poking them a little bit can I put that in today's language do you really need to be affirmed and confirmed all the time do I have to call you every day and say you did a good job praying this morning do you really need me to write out your daily Christian discipleships for you Verse 2, you are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with the ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. So God is still writing. God's not taking his finger and chiseling his law in the tablets of stone any longer. That law's been written. That law's been established. That law's not changing. 
But there is a law that he is writing. Every day and every moment of our lives, he is writing it gently and with grace and mercy upon the heart of each one of us. What was once communicated by the writings in stone now has a much bigger audience. The message has been advanced. The story is now continuing. And the remaining of this writing is not written in stone, but it's written on our hearts. And that now means you are the story. You're the story. And you're also the storyteller. When God writes, His pen is our experiences and the paper is our life. We are letters, or the biblical word epistles, to be read of all men. Can I tell you something that might make you uncomfortable? But we should learn to embrace. People are supposed to watch your life. People are supposed to watch you. People are supposed to see how you live. And when they see how you live, they see a better result from life than how they're living. Then you have the opportunity to tell them the story. Hey, I used to live a life kind of similar to yours. But let me tell you how my life went from being like yours to what you're seeing in me now. There's your segue. There's your end. There's your moment. <clears throat> your story is the compelling story that will lead somebody else to their new life in Christ. And so God is using your experiences as a pen. And God still writes. God is still writing. So don't stop the author. Don't. Cause him to lay down his pen. Still be a humble, willing instrument in the hand of God. We do notice a common thread. And maybe you've noticed it too. With every time that God writes. Every time God wrote, God used his finger. God doesn't need artificial things to help him get his message across. God doesn't need manufactured stuff to get his message across. We have lights. They help with the live stream so it doesn't look like we're sitting in a cave trying to tell people about Jesus. It helps build an inviting atmosphere for people to come into. But they didn't have lights. They didn't have a PA system in the upper room when the Holy Ghost fell. These things are man-made. These are artificial. These are not things that help God write his story. We are the instruments. We are the flesh that God uses to write his story. He once used the flesh of God's finger when he carved it in stone and when he carved it in the wall and when he wrote in the dust and when he writes it on our hearts. But when he wants to write a story in your neighbor's life and he wants to write a story in somebody you're working with, you are the flesh he uses to write his story. God uses the organic and places it in perfect order to write every point of his story.
And if you've ever carved in the dust or you've put your hand in the clay and molded it, you know that when you put your finger in first, you leave a fingerprint. And when you get to the end of your smear and you pull your finger off, you leave a fingerprint. And if you are the flesh that God's using to write, when you start talking, God's fingerprints on you. And when you finish talking, God's fingerprints on you. Because He is empowering you. He told the disciples, don't worry about what to say. Just go and tell them the story. And I'll be with you. I'll give you the words to speak to them while you're talking. Whether it's carved in the hardness of stone of this earth. Whether it's gently traced on the plaster walls or compassionately imprinted in the dust. When God writes, all of creation listens. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.